1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. I am thrilled to have this episode for you this week. My guest is Tanahasi Coates. He is one of those folks who really needs no introduction, but he is at The Atlantic. He's one of MacArthur Genius Grant. He's writing an amazing comic book for Marvel. He's the author of the National Book Award-winning Between the World and Me. And he's come out this week with a tremendous piece, the product of hours and hours of interviews with President Obama about the role that race played in his life, in his presidency, in America right now, in the election of Donald Trump. It's a, it's a really powerful piece of writing, very, very, very thought-provoking. And Tanhasi and I talk about it quite a bit in this piece. I've always really valued Tanhasi's thinking as a writer, as a friend, because he has something I think a lot of folks in American politics lack, which is a sense of historical sweep and also a sense of tragic imagination, a sense that things don't always go right. And at this moment, uh, that I think has been proven out to be true. So we talk about that in this discussion. We talk a lot about the difference between Tanhasi's. I don't want to call it pessimism. Maybe it's a realism and President Obama's optimism. That's really the gap that powers his piece and, and frankly, a lot of his work. We talk a lot about where American politics is right now, how race is or is not playing into it, how polarization plays into it. We talk about ta path into being a writer and why he has found it hard to keep learning in the way he wants to, how it's become harder to be wrong The discussion gets very personal towards the end in a way. I really appreciated him going there, and I think it'll be of a lot of interest to all of you. He talks a lot about what he would recommend to young writers who want to break into the industry, not just in terms of tactical, goal-oriented work, but how do you structure your life? What do you do? What do you read? How do you create a home life that is actually good for creating a strong intellectual foundation i enjoyed this conversation as much as any i've done i think you will like it a lot too before we jump in as always a couple quick requests check out my other podcast the weeds with sarah cliff and matt iglesias we are talking a lot of policy these days i think you will like it share this podcast wherever fine podcasts are shared facebook Twitter, email, go talk to people, tell people about it in person. And continue to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Uh, I appreciate those emails. Your guest suggestions are always appreciated. Uh, keep them coming. So there, without further ado, here is Ta-Nehisi Coates. ta Coates, thank you for being on the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So I, I read your piece, and, and it, it made me sad. It, it is... <laughs> There aren't too many pieces where I think you can really use the word elegiac, but uh, but I think this is one of them.
3: Ah, uh, is that how you pronounce that word? I
2: don't know. I was worried. It's not about elegi- that as It's not elegiac.
3: It. Is it elegiac? It probably is. No, but see, I, I dropped out of college, and so I frequently mispronounce words.
2: So do I. So <laughs> that I read some. So you might have it right. So we're we're gonna get, I'm sure, a lot of reader reader email yeah, yeah, yeah. telling someone, us. Who, who someone this. will
3: let us know whether that was right.
2: So I actually wanted to to get into this piece by talking it, it felt to me a little bit like a full circle for you. Mm. So the first piece you published in The Atlantic was this tremendous article on Bill Cosby and mm-hmm. respectability politics in the African American community. Mm-hmm. And and this piece is really it it emerges out of that critique after you applied it to to Obama, the conversations you had with Obama. The reason he, it seems to me he wanted to engage was that he felt a bit stung by this critique. So I'd love to hear the way you think about uh, the Cosby piece in terms of the Obama context. I'd, I'd love for you to maybe set the scene of, of what began your critique of Obama.
3: Well, in my mind, the, the Cosby piece is overshadowed by <laughs> the fact that we didn't deal with the rape allegations which were out there you know at the time. I that just that's a, a big journalistic lesson for me, so it's actually it's a little hard for me to talk about it outside of that context. I guess I can talk about what i what I was thinking at the time, which was um Cosby was this very very popular african American who was I mean, as far as I was concerned, it was, you know, making a critique of of African-Americans and the problems in the African-American community that had very little scholarship and data behind it. And had that argument been made, uh, an argument with that much weightlessness, (laughs) with uh, that little empirical backing, you know, been made in any other area, you know, I I don't think it would have been tolerable. Maybe there are a few other areas, but, you know, um, I think people are tolerant, you know, of myths about, you know, the African-American community, because the truth of it is, as you say, quite sad, you know, and quite depressing and calls us to do things that, you know, we don't feel we have the courage to do. So in the case specifically of Cosby, it was the notion that actually what was wrong. And and, and I want to say, I think Cosby's respectability politics was much more profane and less compassionate and ultimately more mean spirited than Obama's was. I don't, I don't want to, you know, put those on the same mm-hmm. level. Because I don't think they are on the same level, but, you know, Cosby begins by like mocking with black people name their kids. I mean, this is part of it. How they, you know, wear their clothes, you know, just the, you know, a, a, a variety is just, you know, having some sort of explanatory power for where African-Americans, you know, are in the society did something that, you know, I've never heard Obama do literally said, you know, the lower class, portion of the black community is not holding up its burden. you know, so a kind of classism, you know, elitism, you know, entwined in that. it offended my sensibilities at the time I wrote a pretty vitriolic op-ed in two thousand and four when this happens. fourteen. it's incredible, Jesus! it's not fourteen. twelve years ago. <laughs> so long though, but I wrote you know, a pretty vit- vitriolic piece. And then, you know, when Cosby kept going and when he kept when he started taking this case to, you know, African-American communities, you know, I just wanted to talk to him about it. You know, I wanted to report it out and ask him, you know, what was going on. And so that that was what, you know, brought about that piece. I think one of the things that if you you know, you want to see the lineage in it is this when Cosby would make those statements in front of African-American audiences, he would often get cheered for it. It's not like he would get booed. You know, and I said that, you know, in, in the original piece, you know, in fact, respectability politics are quite popular in the African-American community. And so when Obama picked up that baton in in much the same way as a politician, you know, nationally, and I think he'd been doing it before that, but certainly as a national politician, I think in some ways like you could see it almost like as a sister soldier thing, but I don't like, ultimately, that's not what it was. Like, it was actually much more sincere and than that. I don't think it was necessarily, you know, a playful towards white voters. I think it was something he, he actually deeply, deeply... Believe, but again, it just struck me as so evidenceless when compared to how scientific, you know, the president and you know at that point, candidate Obama was about everything else. You can find great empirical data, you know, on how African Americans live, you know, segregation, wealth gaps, education. You can find, you know, historical explanations for that. There's just, you know, very little evidence that in any sort of broad way that the lack of a work ethic you know among african americans has has some sort of explanatory power and so you know the notion that the president of the united states was the bearer of all the heritage and all the policy that came before him you know it's not just you know he becomes president and that's it you know he he's the the, the representative of the country would then address you know a, a community you know whose situation very much resulted you know from 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 that policy from some of that policy it just struck me as, as off key, you know. He would say, "I'm the president of all people," which was fine, you know, and that's how he would, you know, make this argument for colorblind class first policy, and, th- and that was fine. But the respectability politics was not president of all people. That's not what that was. And so when it came time to Hector, you know, he took on a different pose, and I just, I just found that discordant, you know. What were
2: a couple of the data points that are at the core of how you see this issue?
3: I think, like when I went into this. This goes into like bigger career questions. Actually, <laughs> for a long time, I felt like I didn't completely understand the African American situation. I'm talking about basic stuff, like why, when I am in my neighborhood, do I feel, you know, uh, uh, what I would later identify as unsafe. That's probably not what I would call it at the time. But why am I constantly on guard? Why am I always watching my back? Why am I, you know, constantly watching people where their hands are? What, what's going on here? And frankly, over the past eight years, you know, at the Atlantic, I got some really, really good explanations. I mean, I, you know, I just hinted at it before. You know, when you're talking about at the time, at least when I wrote the, the case for reparations, a twenty to one wealth gap. Well, 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 that'll explain some stuff. You know, when you're talking about, you know, some some of the neighborhood studies that that show, you know, for instance, Robert Sampson stuff up at Harvard. You know, showing this concentration of a lack of resource. Black folks who, you know, typically you would theoretically think of as middle class in terms of their income and and how they live, actually living in neighborhoods that are poorer than the kind of neighborhoods that poor whites live in. You know, some of the research that Diva Pager does where she shows that African-Americans who don't go to college, you know, African-American males have roughly the same sort of job prospects as white men who have criminal backgrounds, who've been to jail. You start to begin to put together a web. And I think this was, you know, best represented probably in the case for reparations in the piece I did, you know, a mass incarceration after that. And to a lesser extent, in in a different kind of way, in between the world and me. And I felt by the time between the world and me was done, I understood. I really did. I felt actually it wasn't that hard to understand at all. The fact of the matter was, you know, for most of this country's history, the policy at the local level, at the state level, at the national level, the policy of, you know, other societal institutions besides government was anti-black. And this was demonstrable. You could show this. If you wanted to be conservative. You could say up until 1965. So for the lion's share of this country's history. And yet somehow there was this deep seated belief that 50 years of semi goodwill would, would erase that. And what what i came to feel was that the answer is actually not that hard. <laughs> it's actually quite knowable, but it's terrible. It's terrible to contemplate. It's terrible to consider. And so we fall back on all of these other explanations, respectability politics being a, you know, a good one.
2: So i think this is a really important baseline for this conversation, which is why i wanted to to lay it out a bit. I think a theme, if I can read into your work in the last couple of years, and in particular into this ongoing debate you've had with President Obama, some some versions of which I've actually been in the room for.
3: There is That's right, you were there.
2: Yeah. So I can't
3: remember you were there for the first one. I felt like I punked out on that one. That was the first one. That man. was the one. I talk about this in the piece. Like I felt like I, that was like the one where I felt like I wasn't aggressive. And now I went to another one and I just overdid it. Like it was how you calibrate yourself to a president. Do you know what I mean?
2: Like, yeah, so you... we're so we're talking a little <laughs> bit elliptically about Sorry Obama about has had a lot of these columnists off the records. Yeah. And and I've and we've both been at a at a couple and, and this is a, a debate. As I was sitting right
3: next to him. I don't know if you remember that i do I was remember sitting, that oh my god that was crazy and then we had a
2: long conversation about medicaid
3: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but
2: but this yeah. is what i, I want to hit here because you and i have talked about this even separate from this debate a lot which is that there are some things in american politics and american life and american culture some true things that it is very inconvenient to believe that mm. it's maybe even counterproductive to believe even though they mm. are true mm, yeah and this has to me been the debate, you are limbing in different ways with, you know, at one point using Cosby as a vessel here in a much more uh, engaged way with, with Obama, that there is a story about racial progress and unity in America. That is not just convenient to believe, not just pleasurable to believe, but actually in some ways effective to believe. It might be the Mm. thing that Mm. is best to believe in terms of getting the sort of Mm. outcomes, like having an African-American president Mm -hmm. that you want. Mm -hmm. And then there's a story Mm -hmm. that is true and in some ways is better at predicting day-to-day events. (laughs) That is certainly right now that is very, nobody wants to hear. Right. Right. To me, the last year or two has been a a collision of these two visions. And there is something and I think it's the the central tension of this piece you're doing about seeing America's best racial instincts followed by its worst racial instincts in this way. That is it is very hard to keep both things in both countries in your mind at the same time.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Where are you? I guess emotionally, intellectually after struggling through this in this article.
3: I don't I don't know. I think I'm a big believer in chaos. I'm a, I'm a big <laughs> I'm a huge huge believer in chaos. The, the history of this country did not necessitate that there'd be a, you know, a Donald Trump following a, a Barack Obama. Was, you know, I don't think it was predictive like that. But it did lay the conditions for it to be possible. So you can't be surprised that it happened. It was definitely one of the, you know, considerable possibilities yeah I find it hard, actually, to say that Obama's optimism was wrong in some sort of global, moral sort of way. i I don't think people who are writers and journalists, you know, should you know shut shut their eyes and 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 way. But at the same time, I mean, and I think this is what you were teasing out. I, I don't think someone who looked at the history of race and racism in this country the way I do, someone who had had the experiences in fact that 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 I've had. Could ever be president in the United States, would ever think to do that. Even if I had the obviously don't have a political, but even if I had political skills, you know what I mean, to do that, it's not possible. In some very, very real and fundamental way, you have to have a sense of almost mystical optimism. And look, religion did not come up in our conversations, but I think that undergirds a lot of it. I, I, I really do. You know, I think like this sort of idea that at the end of the day, it all works out. You know, or maybe I should put that less condescendingly. That we're on the right side of history, and the right side of history. the arc of the moral universe. You know, mm-hmm. you know, bends towards justice. That that is a thing that happens. That's just something that 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 I don't share. But if you believe that, it makes it easy to run for president.
2: I had Cory Booker on this podcast actually, Senator Cory Booker, and we spent a long time talking about. It was right after one of your big pieces had come out, but I'm not remembering which one. But mm-hmm. we spent a, a while talking about your ideas, and something that was identified in that conversation is that his much more optimistic outlook is very mm-hmm. related to his spirituality, his religion. Yeah. In yeah, a I way think that so. your, I don't want to call things pessimism, but in, in the way that your outlook is related, and I think related in ways you've written about to your atheism. Oh, definitely. That there's just definitely. not a sense of it all works out.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it might, <laughs> it might, it could. I'm not saying it doesn't. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, you know, this sense of destiny that it will. I just don't share, and there's ample evidence. You know, I feel like that it, that it doesn't. You know what I mean? Or that you know, it 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 might not. And that that really, I think I think is, is 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 um, is where I come down. You know, I I don't think like you have to believe that America. Or any country, you know, is, is chained to its past and necessarily, you know, is you know, doomed to reenact its past over and over again. And yet, when you study civilizations, it, it, it tends to be true that history has a facts, that history has a gravity, that it has a weight, you know. And if you're going to go in, you know, in, in an opposite direction, you really have to, you know, exercise some degree of conscious force about that. And I don't really see us doing that.
2: I have been since the election Reading a bunch of these pieces that make the argument usually explicitly because people want to share this argument on Facebook and they believe it, that it's all going to be okay, Mm
3: -hmm. that
2: there is a tremendous current and I actually feel it. I feel it in my own gut to make the it's going to be okay argument. America has institutions. Mm. it is absorbed worse than this before. <sighs> Richard Nixon was there. And something I've been thinking about a lot in the context of that argument, because maybe it helps unify some of these ideas, uh, which I feel, I feel a bit the pull of both of them, is that America can be okay without Americans being okay. That when you're speaking on the time frame and the scope of the most powerful country in the world... You are probably right that everything's going to more or less keep going forward, grinding forward. But in the meantime, as history zigs and zags, I think that there's something really dangerous when you erase in order to talk about that almost geologic timescale, that nation state timescale. Mm. When you erase what will happen to the people mm. who lose their health insurance or the people who they or their parents are deported or the people who are sent to a war that never should have happened. Mm-hmm. That America can be OK over the 50 year time frame, but a lot of people can die <laughs> or suffer. Or, right. suffer or be disabled <laughs> right. or lose their jobs or lose right. their children right. in in the meantime. And right. somehow I think it's hard for I think it's hard for all of us to, to hold those two things together. The Obama says this a lot. I think he actually says it in your piece that, you know, the fact that the arc of history bends towards justice doesn't mean it doesn't zag and go backwards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you hear that, it, it has this tendency of like it's like a fast forward button.
3: Yeah, right. You (laughs) know, over that,
2: over that zag, but (laughs) those Zags
3: can be real fucking bad. (laughs) They can be bad. They can be, they can be really, really bad. I mean, it's very convenient to see, you know, progress from say, you know, you start, you know, a country founded in slavery goes to abolition, ultimately, you know, and finishes up in the civil rights movement and, you know, goes to a black president. There's a, you know, a way where you can take a general trend line, but see what you have to overlook is like, (laughs) you know, in the case of the time between abolition and the civil rights movement, a concerted white supremacist domestic terror campaign. These guys completely, I mean, a hundred years war, you know, a shadow war that was waged, you know, over a hundred years, you know, against, you know, individuals. And that was the basis on which democracy was maintained and, 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 you know, in a significant portion of this country, in a significant section of this country, I should say. And thus you know, the country at large, by the way, you know, um, how how do you overlook that i mean this goes back to you know um wanting easy answers every time and maybe this is maybe i'm too focused on this but every time i hear the invocation you know of the new deal and you know people wanting to go back to the new deal i just i can't help but hear the basis on which that that government was established the solid south you know what i mean and you know people who i've profiled you know in my own journalism basically being written out of history and being threatened and being you know, uh, are told to, you know, you know, be quiet or be killed and seeing their relatives killed. I mean, it, it, this is, you know, a, a part of us. And so, um, you know, I, I think like, you know, just sort of wiping that away, you know what I mean? Acting like that, that doesn't matter because ultimately, you know, somebody's grandkids or great grandkids, you know, somehow got out of it. And, you know, I say this in between the world and me, the people who are in that, that period didn't act to be, footstones in your, you know, in your road. You know what I mean? That's not what they asked for. That's not what they wanted. You know, and again, maybe some of this goes back to spirituality because, you know, from an atheist perspective, you know, life is precious. Life is precious, man. Every time somebody dies, like it's the end of their personal universe. It's a notion that you should so easily part with that. that We should so easily hand wave that away. We should so easily hand wave, you know, the the sort of deaths that I believe are going to come. As a result of this election, I just I just can't I, I can't do it.
2: I want to go back to something that, that you talked about a couple of minutes ago about how someone with your ideas couldn't possibly win the presidency. This this, I think, is the central argument of your piece mm-hmm. that Obama has a unique background, as he's often argued, and a unique perspective on mm-hmm. racial progress that maybe is not. The norm maybe is not even correct, but was mm-hmm. intrinsic to him becoming president. And mm-hmm. something I was thinking about and reading your piece, and I think you, you say something not too far from this, but you, by the same token that you couldn't have someone run for office with your ideas who's an African-American, mm-hmm. the fact that you could have someone run for office with Donald Trumps is actually, right. I think, really telling. Right. You could never have had Make America Great Finally.
3: Right, <laughs> as your
2: slogan, right? I mean, there was right. a whole thing in two thousand and eight right. where Michelle Obama said, right. for the first time, I'm proud of my country, and right. people can debate what she meant by that. Right, but that, but that had to be disavowed. Right. <laughs> Whereas right. Donald Trump literally ran for president, arguing right. that he has lost a certain pride in his country, that right. his America has started losing. The right. idea that uh, a, a black man or, or a black woman could run for president. With that idea, with Donald Trump's kind of per, to go to respectability politics, with Donald Trump's personal history as a right. husband and you know, it's not human.
3: possible. It's not possible. And and that it's to me possible. when
2: that to me is in a way the most telling piece of this that yeah. there, there's something about Obama that he had to be the best among us. Yeah. Putting aside almost what you think of his policies, I actually just think as a human, he's a very. Uh, I have always found him to be a, a truly admirable human being, even when That's I disagree with him. And I agree. Donald Trump is not he's something he's something different. He That's he right. has not had to be the best among us, I think, to win this.
3: Right. To right. Win and and presidency. I think like so people say, Well, those, you know, it wasn't racism because you know, racism is not a fact. They're here because, you know, there were people who voted for Obama who then voted for Trump, but you know, I argue this in the piece, but Obama had to be Obama. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? In order to get those voters, he couldn't. You know, there is no black equivalent, you know, of of, of Trump that is contending for the presidency. I mean, I, you know, I put this in the piece, but I, you know, I got it from a, you know, actually my editor, and you know, David Brooks wrote this column. He said, listen, we don't know how much racism played into this. If you're, you know, working class and you're white and you're living in these, you know, sort of areas and, you know, all these sorts of problems, maybe you would take, you know, a chance on Donald Trump. It doesn't necessarily mean you endorse all of his ideas. You know, as my buddy said, is that what you said to the followers of Louis Farrakhan? No, nobody says that to the followers of Louis Farrakhan at all. Oh, you know, he blasts him as an anti-Semite, which he is, you know, and say, you know, how can people follow this bigoted message? What is going on? You know, I was around for the million memoirs. That's not what people said. <laughs> they didn't say maybe, Not what you they're know. saying to Keith
2: Ellison right now.
3: No, no, no. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. That, that's not the standard, you know, that, that, that people are wrecking. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I think that's the ultimate testament that you could be Donald Trump and be president. There's no black person who could, you know, have the kind of, you know, vices that Donald Trump has, and help be governor. You, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not. It's not. It's not possible. You know, maybe mayor somewhere. You know, <laughs> but you know? <laughs> but this I think is
2: an is an interesting point because I do not find the flip of a place like Michigan or Wisconsin from Obama to to Trump as I found it shocking because a poll said it wasn't going to happen, and yes, I, I yes, tend yes. to believe polls. So I don't want to. Yes. I don't want to overstate my right. my powers of prediction here, but I don't find it conceptually shocking. And right. one thing that I'd be curious to hear your take on: Barack Obama was able to run with an extraordinary optimism on race, but also run as an African American with an extraordinary connection to the African American and and more broadly non-white communities. Mm -hmm. And he could do those two things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton couldn't. And so she, in a way, ran a campaign that was harder edged on these issues than Obama's was, actually. She ran a campaign where the narrative of a rising demographic heavily non-white coalition that was stronger together was really front-loaded
3: but and did that demographic believe her well, I don't that's know. the question i keep going over in, in yeah. my head you know so I, I can only the demographic that she allegedly spoke for <laughs> like did they yeah. actually did they accept her you know what i mean like the thing i keep going over in my head is um so i'm i'm 41 years old you know that video of her you know, people say, well, it's an old video of her saying super predator, but see, if you're my age, you were of that generation that she was talking about. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, you remember, you have very clear memories of the Clintons, you know, running on on, on this notion of 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 crime, right? Like, you, you remember that. It's not a, like mass incarceration happened during your youth. And you know, you can debate, we can go back and forth about the effects of the crime, but whether it caused it or not, you know, that that's not really the point I'm making. But the associate—it's—it's it's a real visceral thing. Sister soldiers is a thing that, like, I actually remember. Ricky Ray Racket, like, these are things that I remember about the country. And so the notion that they would then be the spokespeople, you know, for this anti-racist movement—did I mean, I, it ever take? That's what I wonder. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really wonder did it ever take? Putting aside, you know, the, the historical notion of, of voting for a black man, you know, to be president, I just wonder if it ever. Tuck, if folks ever believed or if they thought, well, I mean, yeah, okay, so that's the culture in right now, you know?
2: I actually think that is a huge piece of that. Because she couldn't trust that it would take, she had to be much more. She had to go harder.
3: Oh, I She had to go much harder than Obama. Obama was able to leave a lot
2: unsaid and to to the point of your piece, put a lot in a much more optimistic frame, whereas, you know, Clinton was trying to win over a Hispanic community that was often skeptical of her, a left community that was often skeptical of her, a Black Lives Matter community that was often very skeptical of her. So she was very explicit. Trump, meanwhile, was also very explicit. And so you had a campaign that activated voters' racial identities in a way that Obama and Mitt Romney or Obama and John McCain sort of agreed to run as Democrat and Republican or right. worker
3: versus manager right. or, you know, you you know, what, a, takers versus, Yeah,
2: you know, something like that. And I think,
3: I think that part had a of that though effect. is like, I think part of that is Obama's history. Like I think, and I'm just speaking as an, you know, as an African American, yeah. I can't speak for other, you know, parts of that, you know, demographic groups in that coalition, but, and I asked them about this, you know, you grow up in Hawaii, far from the struggle from, you know, the effects of Jim Crow. It takes a certain type of person to say, no, I'm going towards it. I'm going to go towards the problem, you know, and I'm just going to be blunt here. You know, it takes a certain type of person to say, not only that, I'm going to marry a black woman who looks like Michelle Obama. And not only that, I'm going to write a memoir, you know what I mean, where I talk about my own drug use and I, and I you know, I go through all this. And I'm going to be an activist, you know, not for a long time, but for a period of time on the south side of Chicago. That That does not sound like somebody who's faking it. You, you know what I mean? So I think oh, that Oh I hope he gave... didn't take from me the idea that he was No, 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 no. but I think yeah. that that was the reservoir. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I think he yes, had that reservoir. Yeah. And thus he didn't have to say. Right. you, you, yes. you see what I'm saying? So it was 100%. like 100%. You know what I mean? Like you look at him and you say, "Okay, you've done certain things clearly in your life and lived your life a certain way. It doesn't require you." And I and you know, from the perspective of, you know, black people and black voters, they know the country you know, the country. So, I, you know, even though there was some outcry from activists and, and certain writers for him to speak more forthrightly, I, I don't know how deeply that was felt among African Americans. I don't, I don't know how much demand there was, you know, for him to actually come out and do that.
2: Oh, I think you're, I think you're completely right on that. Yeah. But, but to me, it's just why to go back to the point you made the idea that because you had Wisconsin vote for Obama and then Trump race couldn't mm-hmm. be involved. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think you even have to talk necessarily here about racism. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, Make a lot of sense to me. I think mm-hmm. that in a funny way, while you had a very sharp racial breakdown in the votes in 08 in 12, Obama was able to run a message at white steelworkers right. that wasn't actually about race. Whereas mm. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump mm. both ran a message at mm. white steelworkers that mm. they heard as about mm-hmm. race. It was a sort of yeah. fight about what Ob- yeah. Obamaism represented in this yeah. country that had to be done yeah. without a lot of yeah. the grace and right. um, and at times even elision of of Obama.
3: Obama doesn't have to give an alt right speech, for instance. Right. Like he just, you know what I mean. I mean, he gave his speech on race. But that was because something very specific happened to him. Do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Like he didn't just have to come out and do, you know, an, an alt right speech. He just didn't. You know, he didn't have to, he didn't have to do that.
1: Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.
2: One thing that I was thinking about a couple minutes ago while you were talking was you talked about how there's nothing in the country's history that made Trump inevitable. And I think that's right. Right. And by the same token, I think there's nothing in the country's history that made Obama inevitable. Right. I mean, right. that, that's the other piece of it that your piece, I think, really argues that there is a very unique... Constellation of circumstances and histories and geography behind Mm -hmm. the guy who became Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And I guess then the issue is what does it, given that neither was inevitable but both have happened, what does it do? Because now we're going to have between 12 and 16 years in this country where the president of the country, either by design or just by who they are, really strongly racializes politics. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that goes exactly, but I'm not sure it goes somewhere good, particularly given how fast underlying demographics of the country are changing.
3: I just wonder, like, was it always racialized? But you, you have that like, good Michael
2: uh, Tesler stuff in your piece.
3: I, I do, I do, I do. And that's that's real. I want to differentiate... And obviously this has some effect, but I want to differentiate things that are there and have a blanket or a sheet over top of them mm-hmm. and things that are there without the sheet. You, you know what I mean? And maybe pulling out the sheet, it strong, has some effect. Strong effects. choice
2: of metaphor there.
3: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, you know, pulling off the sheet has some effects, right? And makes yeah. some things apparent. I just... um. I don't know. Was it not racialized under Reagan? Was it not? You know, I mean, Re- Reagan goes to Philadelphia. He goes to the Neshoba County Fair. Willie Horton is a thing that happened. Ricky Ray, right? I mean, these are things that actually, here's what I think it is. African-Americans may not have had this much power within a particular political party. And I say may not because I'm not sure, but may not have had this much power in a political party since Reconstruction. And black people have a lot of power in the Democratic Party right now. And so you can go to whole state houses in the South, Mississippi, Georgia, and the Democratic Party is a black party, essentially. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I should I should flip that and say the Republican Party is a non, <laughs> it's a, you know what I mean? It's a white yeah. party. You know what I mean? It's basically a completely, and I don't know when that's been true in history. Part of that's Obama and Trump, but but part in some ways, Obama and Trump are just a reflection of, of, of that fact. You know, so in some ways, I mean, this is a story of of, of empowerment.
2: But let me push this data in a different direction because I I think I read this a little bit differently than you do. I think sometimes people look at this and they say that, you know, this argument is saying that that race didn't used to have this power in American politics. And and of course it did. We Mm We had a civil war in this country. I think what this data shows, though, is that like a lot of other things, racial attitudes weren't as structured by party in American right. politics right. 15 right. years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, we we mentioned the Tesla stuff a little bit briefly there, but what his data shows, or among the things his data shows, is that you go to the early 90s and you pull something like the O.J. Simpson verdict, which is mm-hmm. a, a racialized controversy. Mm-hmm. You see very similar numbers among Republicans and Democrats. You go now mm-hmm. and you pull something like the Zimmerman verdict or my mm-hmm. favorite of these is whether 12 Years a Slave should win an Oscar. And <laughs> the views are super structured by party, even though right. the Republican and Democratic parties right. didn't take positions on whether 12 years right. a slave should win an Oscar. Right, right. And the thing that I think is dangerous here, in some ways, like this is what my book, which I, I keep not writing, is, is
3: about- I know you need to write. I've said this over and Unheaded. over again, which you need to write. I'm is, not going to stop saying it. <laughs> is,
2: is about how party is now structuring virtually all of our other attitudes. I mean, t- take a non-racial- wait, wait, wait,
3: wait, why are you not writing this book? Because I'm trying to run Vox. <laughs> oh my God, man, that's no excuse. That's no excuse. A <laughs> Little but, at a time. A little at a time. This is. I mean, I. I just think because I, I just. I'm just gonna give. I'm gonna get on my soapbox sure. for the people real quick because I've said this to you. But I think there is so much nostalgia for a period in time where, as you said, this was not true. Where you know uh, views on race were more, you know, uh, a transpartisan, and the reasons why that was true at the time. And the reasons, you know, why it isn't true now desperately need to be confronted. Okay, that's it. That's all I'm
2: gonna say. <laughs> so let that's me use I'm a saying. non-racial example because I think it's helpful. I thought GamerGate was one of the most interesting things to happen right. in the last couple of years.
3: Right. And <laughs> is that has, does that have to do with politics? Right? Like, why is this happening? Why, you know what I mean? Like, you look at what what is going on here. Why did right. American
2: political sites, <laughs> why did Breitbart and Salon right. develop right. an interest in an? argument about whether video game sites right. were unduly <laughs> influenced by some kind of personal relationship between it's like when you even just like say what happened out loud it, it sounds yeah, it's ridiculous, hard to but, make it
3: make sense it's hard to make it make
2: sense but you know i think this way but my big rosetta stone in american politics in the last for the last 20 or 30 years like the thing that I think explains a lot of what's going on is that partisan and ideological identities merged, that if mm-hmm. you're a Democrat, you're you're really a liberal now. And if you're a Republican, you're a conservative. And that didn't used to be true. And once mm-hmm. that happened, mm-hmm. it set the stage for all of these other identities to align, where you live, mm-hmm. who you marry, what you think about 12 Years of Slave, what you think about video game fights on mm-hmm. the internet. Mm-hmm. And once we do that now, and the stronger this sorting mechanism becomes, mm-hmm. the more... Lethal the collisions between it become Mm -hmm. and and to me that that's Trump. That's Mm -hmm. his whole election a little Mm -hmm. bit because people
3: fighting at his rallies and you know, what I mean, but it's also why was Trump
2: treated by Republicans as a normal Republican, right? Why Mm -hmm. was he close enough to win? I don't think the question of why Trump mm-hmm. won is that interesting. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a million reasons how how did he get mm-hmm. that 100,000 mm-hmm. votes despite losing mm-hmm. the popular vote. Mm-hmm. But why was he close enough to win? And I think the, the answer there is he was able to consolidate the Republican Party. So then he could add on the whatever it was, X percent, 4 percent, 5 percent of folks who were attracted by what was uniquely Trumpian. Mm-hmm. And also who could then deal with like Clinton being a little bit, be, falling a little bit behind Obama. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's because partisan identity had become so powerful. The fact mm. that 50, I think it was 2% of Trump voters said they were voting really against Hillary Clinton, not for Donald mm. Trump, I think is really telling here. Mm. But that goes back to this this question I'm asking before, which is you have eight years in which Obama quite, I think, inadvertently quite against what he hoped would happen, made Racial attitudes more salient in party politics not in Mm -hmm. politics, but in party politics He structured Mm -hmm. the parties more by race Mm -hmm. and now Trump is up here and Trump is getting called a racist all the time Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes correctly, but but in a way that really puts his supporters uh, Understandably on the defensive and you're gonna have at least another four years of him stoking and his enemies stoking racialized controversies that have a partisan valence to them and This just seems to me to be dangerous.
3: Yeah, but isn't it to some extent, and like what I'm hearing is that isn't it an inevitable result of, and and, you know, people can overstate this a little bit, but isn't it the inevitable result of demographic change? In other words, black people, Latino people, Muslims, like just, you know, people lament you know, identity you know, politics right now, but that, you know, these different groups that did not have as much power in the De- Democratic Party have significantly more power now. I mean, folks are talking about, and I don't want to reduce them to this, but this is, I think it shows where you are. And I think it's a good way of looking at this. Folks are talking about a black man who's a Muslim to head up the DNC. I mean, that, I, you know what I mean? To me, that, that shows mm-hmm. a, a kind of shift, you know? So I think there's a way of looking at this and saying it, it's it's a, good thing? I'm hedging because I'm thinking about it out loud. But I think what what you might actually be seeing is that people who did not have as much power in party decision making actually having much more power now. And that actually causing the, the, the polarization. People are more empowered, and that actually representing more of a threat. And I think in many ways, if I can push this further, that's actually what it was with Obama. And I think this is agrees, agrees with Tesla's research. It well, wasn't that Obama did anything or said anything particularly threatening. And it was the very fact yeah. of having a black man in a position of what appeared to be ultimate authority or the highest form of executive authority in the land automatically made things go a certain way, automatically pulled away. And it was nothing he could say. You know, at one point, we went to office. And he was talking about how every time he talks about, you know, any sort of instance in which the police commit some sort of brutality or go and do something, you know, um, that they shouldn't do. He makes a point of saying over and over and over again, you know, he's at pains to say the majority of police, you know, are good, da-da-da-da. And he said he could not, he told me this, he could not understand Why over and over again, people write into him, families of of law enforcement officers, people who just, you know, aren't in sympathy with law enforcement. You never say anything good about the police. You're always bashing. He Actually, I think and I'm going to try to get this right because I I think it's in the transcript. He actually had his staff pull together his statements, you know, when he had, you know, said, you know, you know, went and addressed police groups, said good things because I mean, it just just can't understand what like where these people getting their information from. But maybe it's not ultimately about information. Do you understand what I'm saying? Maybe, you know, it's about the fact that he's the authority. In other words, they don't resent what you say. They resent you. They resent you. There was no, there's no talking your way out of this one. You know, it's you. It's actually you.
2: I think that's a hundred percent true. Although the the one thing I would say is that if you pull the tape back eight years, let's say, or Mm -hmm. 10 years, there was a vision that it could turn out a different way. The Karl Rove theory of American politics was that they were going to – the Republican Party was going to capture older people through Medicare Party. Mm-hmm. It was going to capture Republicans because it's the Republicans. It was going to capture Hispanics through immigration reform mm-hmm. and that that was going to be an unstoppable coalition. There has been this running argument in in Republican politics that, yeah, maybe we we've lost African-Americans but Hispanics and Asians, if you look deep into their political views, like they're with us on on business and they're with us on free enterprise mm-hmm. and they're with us on these these other things, and there turns were- turns
3: out white Americans weren't with them on all
2: those things. Right, but that that became <laughs> that's what I think is so. Yeah, <laughs> that's why this broke. Like you you had this idea, and like this was the 2012 Republican autopsy. It was only yeah. it's only four years ago that Republicans mm-hmm. were making this argument that right. the way this was going to work is that you know Republicans were going to be you know much more is actually is. At least gonna be much more split. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't all gonna be that Democrats are the party where non-whites have power. Mm-hmm. And now it is, right? It I, is. I think that is becoming more and more irreversible in American politics. And I think the thing that, that people didn't give enough credit to was that there would be this counter-reaction among the Republican base. And that yeah. the Republican base was not gonna let the Republican Party do that. That this this other approach it was actually not gonna prove viable.
3: It would be much a much better place if the politics of this country and maybe politics period were an argument over the role of the federal government, the role of business, that sort of thing. What what's your, you know, idea of whether you think healthcare, you know, is best dealt with at a state level or a national level. Do you think, you know, how much you think the government should tax? You know, like that would be a much better place And yet, you know, somewhere deep in our gut, what we're talking about is tribe here. You you know what I mean? Like that, that it actually came down to tribe that, you know, the guy who, you know, beat Hillary began his career in national politics, rooted in racism, rooted in the birth. of like the first thing that happened, you know, it wasn't trade, the government in terms of jobs or anything like that. It wasn't that, it wasn't that it was this base, not even really, and I'm about to say base appeal, but in fact, what I would argue is that it was an appeal to history. It was history. That was the thing. I mean, it's 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 terrible to contemplate. It really is.
2: But that I think is part of the the tell of all this, right? Mm-hmm. That I think something that Trump does not credit isn't exactly the word I want to use for, but but one part <laughs> of his political intelligence that I think people don't give him enough credit for. Is what he did was he split open a suboptimal political consensus in the Republican Party, Mm -hmm. which is the Republican Party had built this coalition of rich people Mm -hmm. and let's say downscale whites, among many, many others, where some people's first best was less government and lower taxes. And some Mm -hmm. people's second best was less government and lower taxes, where their first Mm -hmm. best was Mm -hmm. more government for me, but not for Right. Non whites. Right. And what Trump really did was he was able to make that argument. He did not go out and say he would make government smaller. He Mm -hmm. really went out and said, I will make sure you get. The government. He He's not governing this way. These aren't the people he's appointing. But he really did go out and he said, I'm not going to cut Medicare and Social Security. I mm, am just going to mm. make sure immigrants aren't coming over the wall to take it from you. Mm. I am not going to let it be the case that nobody has health care. I'm going to make sure government pays for it. But I'm not going to let these other people come in and take advantage of your health care system. Mm. I am not going to let jobs leave these communities. I'm just going to make sure the Chinese aren't taking them. Right, right. And he kind of made an argument that you see in other countries, which is, yeah, big government, but big government for you, majoritarian racial group, not for all these other people. And previously Republicans had had a consensus that did not make that argument. So did not activate a lot of people who
3: wanted that argument made. I mean, this is like one of the more distressing aspects of the economic, or I should say, you know, a kind of strict economic analysis of this sort of thing. I mean, I just, I spent a year in a country where the socialist traditions are deeply, deeply entrenched and they do nothing to combat the kind of, well, to combat the ethnocentrism of the country that folks can completely believe in, you know, more government can, you know, completely believe in a, a livable wage. That they can, you know, completely believe in fully single-payer healthcare. You know, they can believe in all of these things. And at the same time, say, I want a burka ban. You know what I mean? Or much worse things. That those two things can situate together. I mean, that... And frankly, that actually is not far from, you know, our own history. I mean, you know, certainly there were Southern populists who thought the same thing. Theodore Bilbo running, you know, on the ticket of bragging about being, you know, uh, an FDR Democrat. That is just... Man, it would be a much easier world if that were not true. (laughs) I wish that were the world. I really do. I want to go back then to something we were
2: talking about earlier and that I think is the center of your piece, which is this idea that there are ugly explanations for things that are maybe even correct, certainly have some level of truth to them. But that if you want to get things done, if you want to make progress, maybe it is not helpful to believe those explanations. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that to me, that's where your piece kind of ends here, Mm -hmm. right? That it was only someone who believed the things that you disagree with Obama believing that could have done what Obama did. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you think about that, how you think about the question of maybe the tension between the things you think to be true and the things that people will need to think to be true to not activate this kind of backlash. Hmm.
3: I, I don't know. I really really don't know. I guess the first thing I would say is that politicians and writers have different jobs. That's the most obvious thing. Yeah. Um but I I don't know. I mean I think you 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 point at a a really great <laughs> conundrum. You know, it's one of these things where I had to state what I believe, but where does that actually leave us? Does that mean that people should just embrace myth? I don't think it means that. Does it mean that people need something greater than themselves? Like in general that, I mean, this really goes to what is your, forget individuals, right? Because I don't think that's what it's, what it's about. I think it's about what do states need in order to organize themselves? That it's not enough to just state the case factually, that this will be better for you if you do X, Y, and Z. What, what do you need? Do you need a founding, some sort of founding mythology of yourself? Is that necessary? Do people need that in order to believe? In France, for instance, and I just keep going back because it's the you know country that right now, not that I know, but that I have you know the most experience with, there's a belief in the French people. The French people are a thing. And... In the myth, in the telling of the myth, the French people are raceless. In the myth, I'm being very, very clear about that. I'm not saying that's the way it is, but in the myth, that that's the idea. They aren't divided by race. You know, they they um they're a nation. They are a nation. And in America, it's different. Like it's more creedal. It's the you know people can be American and come from all sorts of places. I mean, at least that was what was true before. You know, until this election, that they come from all sorts of places, but they believe in these values and they believe in this exceptional place where you know you work hard. And you get but when you have demonstrable evidence that that, that that's not true, the France clearly is not white. You know what I mean? That there are, you know, all sorts of people that in fact even the idea of a French people forget, you know, people from, you know, Africa or Asia that France itself, the very making of it, is a recent development in the past, you know, two or three hundred years that there are people within that country who spoke a different language at a different, you know, at a relatively recent point in time, and then you come over here and you say, Well, in fact, if you look at the data, that's not true. It's not true that, you know, you can come here and just suddenly have an opportunity. In fact, it's not been true to people that have been here the longest. What what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Can you actually involve yourself in a kind of politics that doesn't, at least to some extent, take heed to that sort of myth? Can you? I don't know. So I want to ask you about
2: a piece of this that's a little bit meta. Which is, you mentioned the different roles of the writer and the politician. And, and, mm-hmm. and one difference between those roles is people believe that what the writer is saying is what the writer believes. Mm-hmm. Whereas there is a space created. I think it, it's often overstated, but there is a space created for political cynicism, for the politician mm-hmm. to say what he needs to say, what she mm-hmm. needs to say. Mm-hmm. And something that comes up a little bit in your piece, you talk about a discussion you had with the President about your your piece on reparations, mm-hmm. and he gives as he as he often does is a very nuanced answer where he sort of says, "Look, when I talk to Lee and Sasha, I tell them, "Yeah, we have responsibility for things that maybe we didn't do wrong, but you know that's not going to sell politically and you and you write and and I want to read this out that I found it interesting that The optimism does not extend to the possibility of the public's accepting wisdom, such as a moral logic of reparations, that the president, by his own account, has accepted for himself and is willing to teach his children. And so one question I have for you after these conversations with President Obama is, do you think there's a double argument there? Do you think that his private view is significantly different than his public view?
3: No, uh, I think there's a kind of contradiction. Like, why are you optimistic about... The boundless capability of the American people to endure Trump, but not optimistic about their ability to see politics in a more, I would argue, sophisticated fashion. Why? Why are you not optimistic about you know the ability of everyday Americans to someday accept the same sort of wisdoms that you would teach to your kids? Do you understand? Like to your kids. Like he did at that point, he was no longer being abstract. He was saying, "Yeah, we are." We are responsible for more than what we do. We are responsible to our history. We are, you know, when people have less, you know, there's, there's a weight of history. We are responsible to that. And I would tell my kids that, but I can't see a country as a whole. And what he would say, I think in his defense, because he did say this, and I think this bears mention, he, he cited various examples across history in other countries and said, this is just not, it's not clear to me that this works. That to me is contradictory to what I see as him seeing something special about America. I'm I'm hesitating in using the word American exceptionalist, because I know I've heard him kind of push back against that a little bit or try to nuance it a little bit. Certainly he believes there's something peculiar and particular about being American. And if this is and, you know, his argument I would make, you know, from you know, extending that logic out, you know, the, the logic of how he sees the country. If this is, you know, the first, you know, truly enlightenment republic is the oldest democracy in the world. If if you are that pioneering, how can you cite other countries that don't have that sort of record? Where is your exceptionalism now? You know, if you really are that, then why does that not extend to other things? Even, you know, I, I talked to, to the president of to him for about four and a half hours. It just didn't seem like enough time. I I could have told him, this, I said, we could keep going on this all day, man.
2: You know what I mean? So after talking with Obama for for four and a half hours on, on these issues, what do you think about him, believe about him, know about him that's different than when you started?
3: God, he's really smart. He's really smart. I mean, and I guess I knew that, but, and I say this in the piece, what is said about him often is that he is professorial, but I think that is obscuring of how agile, like that gives you like this picture, of this guy giving an election. He's not like that. Like, it's not like that. It's at least in our conversations, it was much more free associative, you know, and he would talk in these whole paragraphs he would, he would literally think I like, I, you know, maybe I got this wrong, but my perception of him was that he was literally thinking it out as he was talking, that he did not have canned prepared answers that he actually was, taking this stuff seriously. I was shocked by how much he wanted to talk. He wanted to talk about these things. You know what I mean? Like people say the president has you know, run away from it. I, I don't think that's quite true. I don't think that's quite true. I think, you know, he says this himself. He's wanted to make sure that when he talks publicly, it has some sort of effect, really. Like, I think he finds specifically the situation of black people in this country of great interest and intrigue. Like, I think that's original to him. And not original to him in in, in the fact that it's not, you know, I don't think other people feel this way, but I think like he's not putting it on. I mean, people say this about the race speech that he made in a way. They say he wanted to make that speech. People try to talk him out of. He wanted to make that speech. So, A, yeah, it was surprising to me how much he wanted to talk about it. B, I was deeply surprised that he wanted to talk to me about it, to be honest with you.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm not um, at all. <laughs> really? Why not? I'm surprised you're surprised, to be honest.
3: I don't know. I mean, I, I think maybe not him, but I, I definitely had the sense that there were people around him who were like, listen, this dude then got into, you know, arguments with you in the White House about this. Why are you going to, you know, hand all of this time over to him? And like, who knows what the hell he's going to do with it?
2: Be, you because know, I think you're under. I think you're understating the role you've played in the last couple of years that there has been a narrative, a discussion that has had to be engaged during the Obama administration about race in this country. Hmm. And he's been one of the people driving that discussion, but after he's become president in a much more elliptical way, usually, and then you have emerged as as one of the key others. And I think that, you know, and having been there for some of these discussions, I think that your critique stings him and he is somebody who... He is somebody who responds to criticism. I also think there's an interesting facet of him. The criticism he hates, the, the stuff that I think that he really feels, I saw this a lot when he used to attack the professional left. He is really frustrated by people who he thinks he's fundamentally on their side. Yeah,
3: that's true. And that's they, are true. For, yeah. they, they are not giving
2: him credit for, they are not taking seriously the drawbacks of their own positions yeah. and not taking seriously what they would do if they were in his chair.
3: I have some degree of sympathy for that. The place where it came up for us was actually not with me, but with activists. He, I think somewhere in his mind, sees himself as other them. You know, I mean, and this runs, the, board, runs you know, the gamut from folks, you know, in terms of LGBT issues and, you know, marriage equality to, you know, drone strikes all the way over to Black Lives Matter. I mean, at one point in the, in the interview with me, he said, what, you you think I don't care about? you know, gay people, you think I don't care about, the I mean, you think I'm like doing this because, you know, I, I you know, just don't want to do it. You think that's the way, you know, I do want to do it. You think that's the way it's going. And I think he, um, I think he thinks he deserves more leash than he gets or he deserved more rope than he got. At the same time, you know, I have to say, and this is why, you know, this is to some degree why I give him all the credit in the world, because he'll say that and he'll feel that way. And I saw him do this in the interview. And then at the same time, he'll pull back and say, but you know what? It probably is good that they're doing this. Like it probably is good. I do feel like I'm right. I do feel like they give me too much shit. I do feel like I'm fundamentally on their side and they should recognize that. But if they stop doing it, and he said this, if they stop doing it, you know, we might, you know, begin to go easy on ourselves. So I I don't know you're gonna get another president this self-reflective. You know, I'm just going into fanboy mode right now and I'm sort of embarrassed at myself. For saying this, but that is a deeply, deeply admirable trait. Do you know what I mean? Like to actually pull back and say, this is how I feel. I'm hurt by this. And then, you know, and he said it, but I'm not too hurt because I recognize X, Y, and Z. Even if, you know, in your spirit, you're not quite there. Like the ability, I mean, is Trump doing that? Was Bush doing that? Did Bill Clinton do that? Was that part of who... Like, when I've read about them, this is not what I know of their personality, you know? It's not what you know of people in general. But I I think that's a deeply, deeply admirable and healthy trait, you know? I I think, actually, Bill Clinton, I
2: think, he would oscillate, from what I've read of him and know of him, he Uh, would oscillate a little bit between fury at his critics and sympathy for them. Okay. Um,
3: so you Obama doesn't have fury at his critics. He has like annoyance. Yes. Like, he doesn't have fury. He doesn't want to humiliate him. I mean, like, he doesn't have fury. He just has like kind of annoyance. Like, you know what I mean? But
2: but this is, I think, I mean, it's funny. something you said a minute ago where he you said that he thinks of himself as part of, of, of the activist tradition. I heard that and I think, but of course he is. Of course Donald mm-hmm. Trump is an activist. Of course Bill Clinton. I mean, I recognize that these lines get blurry and at a point you change categories. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> if you are somebody who has gotten into politics to make dramatic change and you eventually like work your way up to president, it's just it's so easy to forget that these people are people mm-hmm, and they see each is. other in the context of their own story and the story mm-hmm. they have been telling themselves for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. But of course you not only would you see yourself as that, you would see yourself as the best damn activist mm-hmm. there is in the country. Like the, the idea, of these other people who have achieved what are who don't get anything done. Yeah. Right, is, right. I mean, it's one reason I think folks in that position often find it so galling because mm-hmm. they think, yeah, I may, the compromises I made, like, look, I was right. Right. Now it's me and not this other. I mean, right. Obama comes to office in the context of George W. Bush. Right. And it's like a year after George W. Bush is out that you have really vicious criticism of him. Vicious may actually not be the right word, but very. Serious criticism of him from from the left for the compromises he's making and the things he's not getting done. And I think he's sitting there in that time thinking, you all let this guy get elected. <laughs> and now you're telling me that I'm not a liberal because I had to bargain away the public option to get health care for, you know, 20, 30 million people. I'm not saying he's right. But I, I have always thought that's really important to understanding not just his psyche, but I think a, a lot of these people's psyche. I think it is very, you look at them as a state and it is very hard for them to look at themselves as a state, even mm-hmm. as they act as a state.
3: But you know, the flip side of that is, okay, so what do you want us to do? You want us to just go away? Yeah, no, you're- it, Like, I mean, I, like the logical conclusion of what you're saying is that you should not be criticized. No, but I, that, my point is- Like the, the activists the, should just That stop. is how I they mean, feel. You know, right, but right.
2: That's inside their own story.
3: Yeah, right, 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 yeah. And
2: their story is is limited. Yeah, yeah. Right? You do make compromises as you become in power. You do, I mean, I think the way the state has weighed on Obama, I think is really interesting, particularly in the national security space. Mm -hmm. I am very skeptical that Obama would have been comfortable with the drone program under George W. Bush. That's
3: right, that's right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, one of the things that, you know, and I guess I can say this here that I really wish... I had gotten in the piece and I tried, but I just didn't have, frankly, the the reporting chops to do it. I think there is some piece to be written that looks at Obama as a product and really, you know, as ultimate product of the black freedom movement. And compares that or contrasts that with his national security policy. I mean, even now I'm struggling to articulate what that would be, but I'm struggling to see... A bust of Martin Luther King, you know, in the president's office.
2: You have a really fascinating bit from him in there. Yeah. About Donald Trump and the surveillance state.
3: That's right. That's right. And, and that, that's, I had a whole section that got shrunk down to like three paragraphs. It had to, you know. Yeah. But yeah. it's one of the only yeah.
2: places where Obama makes an argument that you just forthrightly say that's a bad argument. Like that yeah. is not persuasive. Yeah, no, and it wasn't. It is, it is not persuasive. I <laughs> it, mean, wasn't. And, it wasn't. And, you know, he basically... It's to,
3: not persuasive, is it? To, no, it's, it's not. not. I mean, it's, he it's argues... Not. It's
2: not. at all. He argues that there are institutional restraints in American politics, that Donald Trump will not be able to use the NSA, the surveillance state, other the FBI, et cetera, to retaliate against political enemies, even if he wants to. And he just doesn't really have a reason for that.
3: Yeah, right. And then what he says next is... Now, anyone can abuse that power. And so it's up to people to be vigilant. But wait, like, which is it? You you know what I mean? Like, which which is it?
2: I don't know what being vigilant in that. I mean, when they've got the surveillance power, you can can complain, but they're the ones who can be vigilant.
3: Right. They're being vigilant. They're the ones that are vigilant. But I think this is,
2: I mean, this is a little bit as a a different topic, but this is a very scary space of these next couple of years. Mm hmm. It never occurred to me to feel unsafe about the idea about if Mitt Romney won and that's my own. I'm Mm -hmm. not arguing that's not my own privilege and for people who would have Mm -hmm. lost health care. And I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it never occurred to me that there would be just a campaign of retaliation against folks the administration found critical in any of the other outcomes of American politics. And I think we are about to have a tremendous test of our institutions. And I am, I am watching the Republican party right now say about this Mm -hmm. Russia stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as of, as of this moment, Paul Ryan, for instance, has been very quiet about it. Mm. This Mm. is not a test. It looks to me like our institutions are ready for.
3: Yeah, no, I I agree. I
2: think there's something real scary happening here. And I I don't, I don't even know how to talk about it or call it because it sounds so alarmist. Right. But, You know, if you haven't watched, like what we have just learned is that the range of plausible outcomes in American politics is wider than we thought. Yeah, I mean, that's true in campaigns. It's even more true in governance.
3: Well, one way to think about this, and, you know, I I say this in a piece is that something like this has happened well within the living memory of a lot of Americans. And that is that the very civil rights movement that people salute now, Martin Luther King's patron saint of freedom and rights in America now was harassed by his government and people in high positions at the very least, you know, presidents knew he was being bugged. I don't know if they knew how far, you know, Hoover really went, but they at least knew he was being bugged. So if you're saying that this is something that can act, that actually has happened relatively recently. I mean, did, did, did the institutions actually improve that much? Like did that much change that it can never happen again? Like you would have to point me to that. I mean, torture is within our, recent memory, you know, recent, recent memory.
2: And I think it's you about know, to be within our, our present reality. Right, right, right. Our present reality,
3: right. And so, I mean, it, it is, um, in this case, this is where African American history is very instructive. As patriotic as African Americans, I think deep within us, there is some sense of tragedy. There is some sense within our history that we know we are capable. You know, We know our parents, I mean, literally my father, very much know what the state is capable of. Tell the story of, the of your father. Oh man, uh, my dad was in the Black Panther party, and I had written a piece. And obviously, when Donald Trump won, I won, you know, I had a draft. It wasn't completely done, but when Donald Trump won, I, you know, obviously that draft had to change some. And I reached out to the White House, and you know, asked if you know the president would grant another interview. You know, at that point, he had granted the amount of interviews that he agreed to do. And at first, the answer was no. And so I said, okay, I gotta you know figure out how to do this piece without you know what I got, and I was doing that. And then close to the end, you know, they reached out and said, actually, you know, he, he, he'll he take the time to button this up for you. So I said, OK. And it just so happened that on that day, I was getting some genealogical research back. And part of that genealogical research was the history of my father, who was in the Black Panther Party and had always said to me, that he thought the FBI had done something. It was this vague notion that the FBI, maybe, you know, like some news reports in the local paper, that they had done something to him while he was in the Panther Party, but it was not clear what. was given a copy of a document that was sent to, or may or may not have been sent, but that the FBI prepared to be sent to uh, Huey Newton that basically argued for, quote-unquote, something to be done about my dad and insinuated that he was a police informant. And then the next document I got was a memo to the director of the FBI, Diego, who was saying, this is what we should do to this gentleman. You know, William, did call him gentleman, but to this gentleman, William Paul Coates. And so what you have there is the government at the highest law enforcement level, just about in this country. I mean, this is going to sound melodramatic, but it is what it is. Trying to kill my father. I mean, basically trying to set situations in which my father would be killed. You understand what I'm saying? Like trying to incite lethal violence. And, and I want to really emphasize the word I mean, your is, father, not like, right, like 150 like not abstract, years ago. Your father's like my dad. Alive, right? I think, right? <laughs> right, right. He's alive right now, who I will call this evening and see how he's doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, like the dude who actually raised me. So it's immediate. It's like right there. It's right there. So like maybe an hour or two after I get that information, I, you know, I have my last interview with the president. And that's when I ask that question about, you know, uh, are you not scared about what could happen, which he completely, you know, hand waved away, you know, and said, you know, no, no, no. And I mean, I didn't tell him off, you know, oh, you know, I didn't go through my dad's history. I didn't mean not do that. But I asked him, I said, are you not scared that, you know, you've accrued, you know, enormous power in the executive, you know, in terms of national security, are you not afraid of what now happens? He said, uh, and what we were really talking about was, um, Snowden has this notion of, you know, the idea of, you know, all these security powers being given. He has a name for it that I'm forgetting right now. But all these security powers being given to somebody who's wise and who you can trust to use them responsibly. But it's vulnerable because if somebody who you don't trust, you know, gets those powers. Obviously, things can can go the other way. I'm butchering his argument, but it's basically something like that. And Obama, you know, he said this this sort of notion, you know, is is, is ridiculous. We have enough you know, institutions in place to guard against this. And, you know, at the same time, it can be abused, but citizens have to be vigilant. And it just, it just inspired no confidence in me, none.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
2: To zoom us out a little bit, I think that the lesson I have taken from the last eight years, 10 years of politics, not just politics here, but but politics a bit globally is, and it sounds so absurdly obvious, but that the range of outcomes is just much broader than I thought.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not that these things were impossible, but I mean, everything, not just Donald Trump, but we almost breached the debt ceiling for no fucking reason. Right the United Kingdom has voted to leave the European mm-hmm. Union. We had financial crises happen. It's not the most shocking thing in the world, but you know we had a real bad one. The whole reason we had it was that we had convinced ourselves that these assets were, were completely without risk. And something that I'd be curious for your perspective on, because your perspective tends to be much more historical than mine, is one, are you surprised by politics in this era? But two, how does it change you? How does it update the way you think about politics if you begin to say, we really cannot trust the boundaries? We can really not trust that the range of outcomes is between George W. Bush and Barack Obama or even Rick Santorum and Bernie Sanders. But it's something much bigger.
3: Yeah, you know, and, and, and it obviously isn't. I mean, you could just look at the history. I mean, Andrew Johnson is a thing that happened. I mean, that's a thing, you know, a very, very dangerous thing that happened in in, in American history. You zoom that out even more. I mean, with the, the thing that I get mostly, and I hate to go back to this, but just is the history of Europe, where you have institutions in place and you end up with just cataclysmic, genocidal violence nonetheless. And when, like, the asteroid comes towards you and it narrowly misses you, the tendency is to say... Ah, that's because we can't be hit. Right. Like to believe that, like, it wasn't a near miss, that it just can't possibly happen. And that's the thing, like, with the debt ceiling, it's like, uh, you know, like the near miss kind of says, Ha, this somehow says something about our vigor. It says something about the strength of our institutions, as opposed to somebody rolled the dice and it just didn't come up. It just wasn't your time yet. It wasn't your number yet. And, you know, this is abstract, but I think it probably could be very civilizing. To understand that it, it can go bad. I think it's good to be cautious about how bad it actually can get. I mean, even now, like, I think there's a strong impulse among a lot of people to say, you know, we talked about this, you know, you know, early in the podcast, but uh, it's Trump is not going to be that bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, even with Trump yep. winning, like people who, you know, I mean, and the president the same way, you know, you know, how can you on the one hand say, you know, Mia Muska, this guy is not qualified to run a 7-Eleven, not qualified, you know, existential threat, and then say, "Mm, we're strong enough to do it. Well, what were the stakes then? We're really, you know what I mean? Like, why was it so high stakes then? If it's going to be okay anyway, what were the stakes then? You know, if it wasn't that serious, then like, what was it?
2: This I also think is just a habit of mind. And it's one I struggle with. I think I am pretty deeply an optimist. And Mm. as much as... I tend to rationally gravitate towards somewhat more pessimistic explanations of things. <laughs> I don't really believe them. Right. And, and I'll yeah. tell you, the, the one, the, yeah. the place where I am most analytically pessimistic, but do not accord my life in terms of just how panicked I am, mm-hmm. the place where the gap is the biggest is climate change. And yeah. this is a place like just these last couple of years and what's going on. You got on, a
3: house on the coast somewhere right or something? Here? No, I don't. I'm in I'm D.C.,
2: <laughs> man. I'm all good. But... <laughs> You know, I look at this and I I, I think to myself, you know, as somebody who wrote a piece saying Donald Trump is going to collapse. He's just going to cut like that's how this works. I'm not even (laughs) really sure why, but he's going to collapse because things like this collapse. And then he didn't. And there is some part of me that does not spend all of my time freaking out about the fact that we're on track for four degrees Celsius of warming. And I don't freak out because... Eh, things kind of turn out okay. Like I, I've I read all this stuff about how. Wait, wait but what's the other okay?
3: option, Ezra? What, what does freaking out look like? Like, what's the thing that you're supposed to be doing? I have
2: no idea. Right. <laughs> <That's
3: the thing. laughs> I like what? I mean, it's out of your control. So, what are you, are you supposed to not live then? I mean, this is going to be bad. But but I wonder. As a, I wonder now, as so. a writer,
2: I do think that part of my role, part of my institution's role, is to give people some way to think about what's going on and what's coming but and i think you do. I think that I think we you do. i think that i think that one place where not just myself but much of the media really failed and has failed a bunch in the last couple of years is not predictive i actually want to i want to separate something because there's a kind of there's like the nate silverian of questions here about who mm. will win and what will happen mm-hmm. and if you pulled me back in time knowing what i knew two weeks before the election one week before the election i would have been no different Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best – I did not have a reason to mistrust the polls. They could have been wrong the other way. Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. could have won by seven.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, Obama, the polls were off. He just won by more. They mm-hmm. were off in his favor. But the thing that I would have spent more time doing, and this is true before Brexit too, is writing through and thinking through what would happen if the data was wrong. What would happen right. if things weren't okay? Right. And and that's one thing that I'm, I'm trying to take as an editor from this, that I – Think that I too often structure our coverage, my coverage, based on my best guess, my best read of the evidence of what's likely to happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: When if the range of outcomes is broader, some amount of it, it is probably more important than I've given it credit for to be really thinking through what happens if the other, if it goes the other way.
3: Hmm.
1: Hmm.
3: Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I could, de- I could definitely see that. I just, um. I think, you know, taking it back to, you know, where we were. I I don't know. I don't know. I I guess I view my role as different. Like, I think I have to speak the truth as I see it. But, Jesus, this is horrible to say, but I say it all the time. We know it ends badly because we all die. We all die. Like, it's not going to be a happy ending to this story. And I think I try to assume that and then go right (laughs) You know
2: that's going to be my headline for this. Tanasi quotes: "We all die. There's not going to be a happy ending to this story."
3: (laughs) But but I I, there's going to be people crying at the end.
2: But I think there's a real, yeah, I I think there's value to that pessimism. Although something that I think you're good at as a writer, that I I routinely make personal vows to be better at and then fail, (laughs) is communicating your own uncertainty. In pieces mm. is communicating that you are, uh, but you learning, know what, you know, as sure. a that's
3: that's gotten harder to do. That's I'm curious because I do. feel like it's gotten harder
2: for me to do too. Tell me why it's gotten harder. It's to
3: gotten do. harder to do because nobody wants <laughs> to hit that. One way, like I used to blog, and so I think blogging, <laughs> as you used to blog, yeah. I think blogging as a form is open to this, you know, sort of real time, ongoing learning process. So that's one thing that happened. That went away. But in addition to that, as your profile rises, people say you must have this high profile because you're predictive, because you know, because you actually act, like you become a kind of authority. Whether you act to be an authority, it's one of the great frustrations. It's one of the great, great frustrations. I didn't write too much during this last election cycle. And... In addition to working on this piece, one of the reasons why I didn't write too much was because I just didn't want to have to play this oracular role. Like I didn't like there was no space to try to figure it out. There was no space to think about it. There was no space to like go through the arguments. If you're writing, you know, and I experienced some of this, you know, if you're writing something that's critical of Sanders, you necessarily want Hillary Clinton. That's the only lens through which, you know, it's interpretive. And if you're not writing one piece critical of one person and another piece critical of the other person, you are not, you know, balanced. There's no room to tease out, say in my case specifically, what it means that the representative of the left tradition in a Democratic Party rejects reparations. There's no room to tease out what that means. So if it's not, what, what am I doing? I'm just making pronouncements now. I've become, in the most vulgar sense, a pundit. I'm not, you know, open to having my mind changed. I'm not trying to figure it out. I'm not, I'll hit curious. I'm not exploring. I am standing on a rock. I'm sitting on a throne and I'm making pronouncements about what the world is. And that is so boring. I mean, it just, it just bores you, bores me to tears the exciting part about it. And maybe this is why, like, this piece, like, I had a ball doing it, even though it kind of killed me. I had a ball doing it because to the extent that my opinions are in the piece, they're, like, pulled way back. Like, this is Obama. This is the Obama show, man. You know what I think. You already know what I think. I've gone through it. Anybody has followed this, they know, you know, where I agree and disagree. And some of that is in there, but it's mostly... Him, and it was just this opportunity to just pick up the pad and the recorder and learn, like get out of the way and just learn, like, okay, I disagree with you, but how did you come to that? That's still a I mean, whether I agree with you or not, it's still a question that I'm interested in answering. And the space for doing that publicly, for learning, for reading books, like I became a, you know like a symbol. I mean, I, I remember a few months ago, you know, somebody who I won't say who, but somebody got upset because Between the World and Me had no citations of women in the book. When, in fact, there's only one citation in the book, and it's of a woman who's a historian down at Duke, you know, who greatly influenced it. But it it, it didn't matter whether that was true or not, because you're a signpost of something. Do you know what I mean? Like, you become a symbol. And that has kind of happened to me in my career and I actually don't know what I'm going to do about it. Like I'm the guy who I guess white people read to show that they know something. And that's what Between the World and Me is now. It's a book that people feel like is used as a symbol for something. What, What do you do when that's the case? Like that's not what you write for. How do you get back into that space of learning, of exploring, you know, when you become Success It's definitely success But it brings like problems like you can't live as, as, as you used to live, you know, you can't approach writing in, in the same sort of way it's deeply frustrating as you can see I don't have it figured out
2: so one I Differently than you but feel a lot of this. I feel like I have two questions here one is what is how do you feel about that with between the world and me that that's a It's disturbing <laughs>
3: Did you expect that from the book? No, 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 not at all. First of all, I didn't expect the book to be that successful. I just didn't. I mean, you know, I've said this before, but what writers have to do is they have to prepare themselves to not be read. That's the preparation, not to be read by a bunch of people. You know, so I was prepared on the other way. I had all my defenses up for the other thing. I had no defense for the idea that the biggest question about Between the World and Me would be not about my friend Prince Jones, who got killed, not, you know, about, the communication between myself and my son, not about you know how I grew up in West Baltimore not about going to Paris, but would be why are so many white people reading this book that would become the most I mean literally whole article's like written about what what is going on here, and it actually it's frustrating because you see yourself as trying to write from a perspective from an african American perspective that maybe is not you know fully represented, and in your mind to the extent that there's any audience you see yourself as writing for African-Americans like you, who are somewhat frustrated by things. And the book is for them in that sense. It's for that feeling. And it's not that you don't want other people to read it, but then the entire book becomes like that. Like what white people think about it, even as you try to write away from that. I got an essay, you know, at some point about this, but the gays, not even in any sort of intentional way, you know, the gays, like I saw that there was an SNL skit a couple of weeks back. And it was, you know, called the bubble where you could retreat from Trump world. And a signature of the bubble is some, you know, young white woman (laughs) reading between the world and me. And that's the bubble. That's what it means to be white and be in the bubble. The black people, you know, who are, you know, in Harlem, the black people who are in West Baltimore, the black people who are on the south side of Chicago, the black people in D.C. who inspired that book, who powered that book. Are erased. They have no meaning. They have no meaning for the interpretation of the book. Like that experience is completely erased. And what matters is why are people reading the book? It's it's like hard to deal with. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, how to make sense out of that. So I think one of the,
2: one of the things that I hear in that, that's just fascinating to me is I think from the outside, somebody would look at at you in that book and say, my God, he has attained so much power.
3: Right. But That was not what it was for.
2: But but I also feel like what you're saying a little bit is you've also lost control of it
3: That's right. That's right. It was never for that. Like it was never you know sat down. I'm gonna get I mean last time I checked. I mean we are creeping in on on a million like books I mean some ridiculous number like that. It's some crazy number like that, right? I Didn't write the book thinking that man my friend got killed and I was deeply angry about it for a very 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 long time We had an african-american president. I had you know, um An encounter with him that I was left thinking about, and all of that was with me, and I was reading, you know, this James Baldwin, and I wanted to express something. But power? You know what I mean? Power? Nah, man. And and, you know, like one of the things to be honest, I'm getting really personal here. I mean, this goes beyond the article, but I'm 41 years old. I got a 16-year-old kid. I got a wife who I've been with for 18 years now who, you know, is off in med school trying to fulfill her own dreams as I've been able to fulfill mine. My... What would I do with that power? What am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> I, I struggle when I think of ideas. You know what I mean? I'm grown. I'm not going to go out on the town and get drunk. I'm not going to hit on, you know, 20-year-old women and, <laughs> you know, hold out copies in between the What? One... What am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yep. what tangible thing is supposed to come out of that power? I don't, you know, really sit on boards and try to control who gets access to what. That's not really who I, who I am. What's the thing that's supposed to come out of it?
2: Do you, you ever know? think of doing something other than writing?
3: I think of doing different types of writing, but No. No. Because, I mean, in some sense, this is the only thing I've ever done that I was really good at. Besides deliver food, I was pretty good at that when I first came to New York. But besides that, no, no, I don't, I don't have anything else. I just, I, this is what I do. This is what I I, I, I don't know. I don't know. For instance, yesterday, I had a completely empty day. There was nothing really to do for the first time in a long time. And I was so productive. I got so much writing. I got like two Marvel scripts finished. I went and worked on this novel I've been working on for a long time. And I was like, God damn, this was a great day. How come I can't have more days like this? That mm-hmm. That's the thing. People say to me, they say, well, what do you do for self-care? You write about these horrible things. And I don't understand. This is the self-care. It's the most beautiful thing that happens in my life outside of my family. You know? So, no, I don't think about anything else.
2: It's funny. Sometimes I think about whether I'll end up doing something other than journalism. Because to mm-hmm. go back to, to what kicked this off, mm-hmm. I feel that same... It's harder and harder to learn,
3: Mm -hmm, harder and harder mm -hmm. to be wrong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And
2: I worry that
3: the end result of that is getting really bad at the job. I do, too. I do, too. I mean, I I came up and maybe, you know, Vox in many ways, I perceive, I don't know if this is conscious, but I perceive Vox and frankly, I perceive your generation of bloggers, you and Matt and all of you guys. As, and I'm just going to call this what it is, as a response to the kind of fixed nature of, say, editorial pages. And the idea that you would kind of become that thing, do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's just horrifying that you would become fixed in that place where you have to, you know, sort of be right. Where you're just sort of tossing off opinions, where you're not exploring. That scares the hell out of me, man. Yeah, and
2: I have not come up with an answer yet. I've talked about it on, on on this podcast actually a bunch with people. It, it comes up a lot when pe- people are always saying that they miss blogging. And, and for me, it's so specific. I miss the idea in blogging that you could be wrong, that you could be uncertain, that you could try right. an idea. One reason I like podcasting is for some reason you can do it. Ah. If I said some of the shit I've said in this podcast, I think on right. the site, I would get flayed right. alive. Right. Because some of it is just, it's extemporaneous. It's not right. perfectly phrased. Right. And there is something I do not understand. Maybe it's success. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe maybe it's just readership and authority and, and so on. But there is something to me about the form that I feel constrained by. And I think I'm pretty creative with form. And I have not been able to break out of it. Same I, I, I And I, I can't figure out why. and And it feels like a great failure because yeah. not only can I not break out of it, but because I can't figure it out, I can't break my writers out of it. I can't break my institution out of it. And my institution is much – my institution is forced or is being much more certain and much less – a sort of ongoing effort of learning and even trying things out that I frankly want it to be.
3: Yeah. I mean to to be straight with you, I mean the thing I think about this most for me is like at some point and maybe sooner more than later, like I would like to make a, a you know a strong effort to understand understand like what's going on between, you know, the Palestinians and, and the Israelis. But like I can't because like I could have five years ago. Do you know what I mean? Because I would have yeah. been Joe nobody going, you know, to the occupied Territory, you know, just being a reporter, being a journalist. And maybe I can, you know what I mean? But I'm saying that every little step you make to try to figure something out, it's like, what is your stand here? Like you can't be in process in the same sort of way. You know what I mean? It's a kind of, you know, as I said, what happened with the election? You know, you just don't have the and let me let me let me flip this. And not complain about people, because I think like the flip side of that is the stakes are very, very high. And maybe in some sense, readers who have derived some sort of wisdom from you in one case are just desperate, you know, and I don't mean desperate in a bad way. I mean, really, really desperate, you know what I mean, for more, you know what I mean? Um, Because if everything that we've said in this podcast is true, you know, in, in, in the sense of Trump and the world we're living in, that sort of knowledge is deeply, deeply needed. And so the sense that you might have it, and you know, holding back or doing whatever, while you get it figured out. I mean, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to completely understand it. One thing I think I will do at some point is I'm probably going to go back to school. That I'm, I'm pretty clear on. I probably will go back into some sort of educational environment.
2: Tell me why? Because I've thought of that, and I've also talked to a bunch of people about it, and mm-hmm. and it feels like journalism. Even mm. with the the issues we're talking about, the, the the dangers of of being wrong, right? I mean, haven't you been going to school for the whole time I've known you? Haven't you yeah, been talking constantly to academics who who give you tons of their time? So, so, what are you trying to achieve there?
3: Had the world, you know, and I'm talking about my job, stayed the way it was in say 2010, 2011, I probably would feel no need to do this, you know. Um, but. There's just so much that I don't understand. there's just so much that I don't understand and um i you know I'll give you the example of this right one of the things that you know I, I read about all the time is this notion that there's you know and you know we, we notice that there's some sort of crisis across the west that you know Donald Trump connects to marine le Pen you know and this connects to far right in Austria and you know like there's a a a, a movement that's happening in the west and when I was in France for that year um I met Black folks and Arab folks and Megataban and people who were on the other side of that and looked at Black people in America and said, what you're dealing with over there, like we see great commonality. And I mean this in the most like specific sense, for instance, a Black Lives Matter movement actually forming in Paris, which is the thing that actually has happened amazingly. And so there was one way of analyzing what's happening. This rightward move from the perspective from big man history. The perspective of actual, you know, politicians who are seizing power and those movements that are pushing them. But the flip side of that analysis could be people who are on the other end of the boot. But I don't have the chops to make those um, connections. I just don't. You know, Um, I just don't know enough. I don't know enough about, say, globalization to write in any sort of deep and profound way. It happened in this Obama piece. I wanted to make this national security critique. I don't have the chops. I don't know enough. I just don't know enough. I didn't have enough. You know what I mean? To do what I was doing in the rest of the art. I mean, one of the fascinating things is that I had the section in the rough draft. It went to everyone from fact check to copy edit to my actual editors, And they were like, look, this is the weakest part of this piece. We're just letting you know. We're just letting you know. Now, if you want to push it through, like, you know, I had enough. You know what I mean? That I could have, you know, I'm trusted enough to say, listen, this has to be in here. I could have done that. But they said, this this, this is where you're your weakest. We're just telling you because we love you that this is where, you know, you're going to get... You know, the most, and I don't know that you're going to be able to defend yourself. It doesn't look like you can defend yourself. And I don't want to stay in that place. You know what I mean? That's fine. Okay. So I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't pull the trigger right then, but I'd like to be able to pull the trigger at some point, you know? So
2: let's say you're a college student listening to this mm-hmm. who looks up to you as a writer. What is your advice to somebody who wants to be a writer in this era. And I don't mean your tactical career advice. I mean how to do a, a good moral job of it.
3: Yeah, I think um, uh, this is kind of sort of tactical. I think you should learn a foreign language. I think that's really, really important. I wish I were not so late in the game, you know, trying to get this figured out. Because I think you can see more of the world. And I think that's, that's just so crucial to it. I think, um, wow, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I think you probably should not be on Twitter. That is a very, very hard thing to say, but I think it's probably true. Wow. These are like life things that I'm talking about here. I think you should watch drugs and alcohol. I think you don't want to form any habits (laughs) because I think what you alter and what all of this leads to is you want to be able, A, to see as much of the world as possible, but you need time. You so need time to see the world and you don't want to cultivate things that robbed you of time. You should probably have a tight group of friends, but not too many, just a few that you see as much as you need to see. God, I'm giving the most conservative advice in the world. I think it's good to have a monogamous relationship, a good, consistent monogamous relationship. You know, Julianne Moore had this thing. She was quoting somebody else and she said, be regularly, and I'm going to get this wrong, but it's basically be regularly and ordinary in your personal life so that you can be wild and unpredictable or creative in your work. And I'm I'm like a big, huge believer in that. I think like you got to get a discipline as much as possible, personal life, because that enables you to go out and and wreak havoc, you know, in in your work. In the way that I think you actually need, you know, to be able to, if you if you actually you know want to do something distinctive and creative, you know, I had two things that sound counterintuitive that really really helped me. A, you know, as I said, you know, I, I've been with my wife for 18 years now, and so that you know. It wasn't always the easiest thing, but it gave a a sense of stability. Um, And I had a child, it sounds crazy, and I'm not saying you should have a child, but, you know, at a young age, but I had a child at a relatively young age, and that had the beauty of clarifying things for me. Do you understand? Like, everything was clarified. This is the one thing I do, you know, I write, and the thing that, you know, comes from that writing is hopefully some amount of money to feed this kid. That's how the world works. It's just that simple. (laughs) You know, it eliminated so much out of my life, you know, and it gave me, this sounds crazy, right? I mean, it sounds like, because you think about kids taking money and taking time, which they do, you know, they, they definitely do. But I think like, because I was relatively conservative in my personal life, that allowed me to be, you know, flagrantly radical, you know, and, and, and liberal, you know, just in my work and, you know, just go all the way, you know, all over the place and, do things and think about things in ways that I don't know, you know, would have been possible in, in with another life. I mm-hmm. wanted to
2: get for one minute on the Twitter piece of it because I actually mm-hmm. think it's important. And I think if you're young and you're starting out, what you think, and because I hear this from people coming into, into Vox, is Twitter is where you make your name. Twitter is where the people who might hire you are. Twitter is where the other journalists are. Twitter is where news is. News breaks on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump ran his whole fucking campaign on Twitter. How can, yeah. you, be, how can you be off Twitter?
3: I, I don't and know. And you're that on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. But every day I will wake up and hope that I have the courage to leave. And I think someday soon I'll get it. You know, I just think about the writers I admire. You know, one young writer who I just admire the hell out of is Sarah Stillman. I don't know that Sarah Stillman made her name on Twitter. I don't know that that's how it happened. You know, she just won a MacArthur. I, I don't know that she got that on Twitter. I just don't. You know, um, I think she got that by being a tremendous reporter. And one of the things about, you know, I came up in this period where people were deeply skeptical that investigative, long-form reporting had a future. And that has proven to be completely untrue. It turns out people want to hear stories. They want, you know, to know things about the world. Maybe not everybody, but some substantial portion of people actually do want that. And I think if you can cultivate the skills of being able to do that... You got a bright future. You got a bright future. I mean, I just, I know at the magazine I work that, that did, folks are always on the lookout for that, you know, particular talent of being able to tell stories in that, you know, long sort of way. I mean, what we find is obviously, you know, we have, you know, a tremendous online presence. I started off blogging at the Atlantic, but there's some sense that who are we without, if I may be so self-indulgent, like this Obama story. I mean, who that's what we live for. That's not all we are. But if we lost that, we would have some sort of deep sort of identity crisis about what we were actually doing. We're there to push big ideas that are reported that, you know, have some sort of heft to them. I think there's a real need for that. And I think that that remains to be true. It's not clear to me that that. I mean, I think Twitter can help like any other tool, but, you know, I just don't know that you need it. I'm I'm not clear on that.
2: When you say that that's what you're here for, why not be here for blogging? And, And maybe more to the point, why... Why do you think your career has trended towards traditional, towards books, towards magazine articles? You do a lot less blogging and even daily writing than you did a couple of years ago. I'm curious why you think it's gone that way and and if that felt conscious to you.
3: Well, the thing people don't know about me is like, that was actually how I started. First thing I ever published was 5,000 words in 1996. I started at, you know, the Washington City paper. And it's like real heyday where they were, you know, publishing tons of like long form journalism. That, that's actually how I, I was trained. I'm doing what I always was doing. Blogging was the deviation, weirdly enough. You know, for the first four or five years of my career, I wrote like really, really long and I reported, you know, in depth. That was how I got started. This is returning to who I, who I always was. So, I mean, for me, it feels like coming home. It feels like, you know, this is, this is what I've been training to be and what I've been training to do.
2: Right, I'm going to ask you the the question we I, I always ask to close the podcast, and mm-hmm. I think it's particularly relevant given this part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. What are three books that matter to you that you think people should read?
3: Wow, um, that I think people should read. Let me answer the first part of that question, and with one the second because I think it is <laughs> so fair. You know, sort of personal. Obviously, you know, Baldwin's "The Fire Next Time," which taught me what you can do, you know, if you're creative and you're trying to be inventive about how you write anything, The Great Gatsby, which taught me about efficiency and how to, you know, do something great. You don't need to, you know, go on and on and on. And finally, probably Tony uh, Judd's Post-War, which taught me that it was okay to say that you think the world is going to end. I mean, he didn't say that, but that if it's dark, it's dark. And you can say that, <laughs> you don't have to, you know, try to, you know, tie it up in a neat bow. If you think this is bad, you can say it's bad and you can keep going. You know, you don't have any sort of responsibility to make people feel good. That was, there's a, you know, a, a, a part in that book that I think about all the time where he's talking about um, the repatriation efforts at the end of World War Two, effectively ethnic cleansing, where, you know... At one point you had, say, German nationals or German speaking peoples in a Poland and how people like this were pushed out. You know what I mean? And, 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 you know, sent back to, quote unquote, the countries that they belong to. And there's a, 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 an official who's watching that and says, you know, just sort of blow the ending, says history will exact a terrible price for what's been done today. And, 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 and Tony says history exacted no such price. In fact, everything went swimmingly. (laughs) I mean, I'd say everything went swimmingly, but that's basically what he said. He said it succeeded marvelously well. And this notion that things that we find morally repugnant can somehow succeed marvelously. And you can say that. It's okay to say that. You know, you don't have to say that these people eventually paid a price. They did not, they got away with it. And that we have to reckon with that, that, you know, people sometimes get away with, with, with great evil. That book just, it just liberated me, you know, even though that's not what it was supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be, you know, just a straight you know, history of post-war, but it liberated me to just go and I guess be me.
2: That, that brings us back actually to your article. How did you decide to open with that great Gatsby quote?
3: Oh, cause I love the book. Cause I love the book. And I, you know, what I, what I think he's telling is, you know, like, you know, like you, you, you know, I know you had all of these problems and these sort, sorts of issues, but man, you were better than all of these people. And, and Obama, <laughs> You know, from a black perspective, I mean, he was so much better than the people that, and now, you know, I'm just, you know, getting to it, right? I'm just speaking as an African-American. <clears throat> you know, a lot of us, was. he was so much better than the people that tormented him. So much, so much better. And so much more morally astute, intelligent, classy. He was better than the whole lot of them. He really was. You know, they are a rotten bunch.
2: Donacy Coates, thank you very much, man. Thank you. That was Tanasi Coates. Thank you to him for taking the time. Thank you to you for taking the time and and sticking with us. The, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. We will be back next week.